Would you turn, would you pray with me? Before we start, would you pray with me, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are communicating, God. And so as we come to your word tonight, we do pray that you would speak to each one of us through it. Through the help of your Spirit, may we have a greater understanding of who you are, of your love for us, and all that has been accomplished by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Now I'm sure you'll agree that TV adverts make some incredible claims. Let me give you some examples. Now if you're a lady and you buy rock skincare, what will happen? Well, you are guaranteed to look 20 years younger. It's true. And if you're a guy and you spray on Lynx deodorant, what is going to be the amazing effect? You'll become the most attractive person in this world. Now how about what you eat? If you have a bowl of special K for breakfast and lunch, what will, do, what will, what will that do for your appearance? Mm-hmm. A very small tape measure <laughs> will fit around your waist. TV adverts make some incredible claims. But what about Christianity? What is the evidence for the claims of the Christian faith. In other words, intellectually, does it make sense to be a Christian? Or is it all wishful thinking? Is it simply a blind faith? Mark Twain once gave a definition of faith. And here's what he said. Faith is believing in something we, you know ain't true. So, is Mark Twain right? Almost 2,000 years ago, a man called Paul gave us an answer to that question. And tonight, we're going to look at what he said. It was around the year AD 51. And it was an epic moment. It was the moment when Christianity entered into Europe. And you can see this on the map behind me. Paul and his colleagues, Silas and Timothy had brought the good news about Jesus Christ to the city of Philippi. Next they went to Thessalonica, and then on to Berea. However, in each of these cities, his message about Jesus of Nazareth had met with violent opposition. And so eventually, Paul was made to leave. He was escorted to a ship, and now Paul has just arrived at the port of Piraeus on the Aegean Sea. And from there, he made his way five miles inland and entered the city gates of possibly the most famous city of the ancient world, Athens. And Paul knew about Athens. Everyone knew about Athens. Its brilliant philosophers, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. Its outstanding artists. Its freedom of speech. Its democracy. Its magnificent sculptures and builders created a world 
whose glories have never been surpassed. Now it's here in Athens, while waiting for his colleagues to join him, that Paul presents the case why faith has its reasons. Now if you turn to Acts chapter 17, page number 1113, we find out what happens. Acts chapter 17 and page number 1113. Now if you cast your eye at verse 16, this is what Luke records. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Now, the verb reasoned here, it literally means dialogued. And so tonight, I invite you to join me with an open mind as we investigate some of the evidence for Christianity. And it means looking in four directions. Look inside, look around, look back, and look forward. So firstly, look inside at your heart. And it's here we find the quest for a spiritual experience. Now a few years ago, I was over in Delhi in India with a firm called Ernest & Young. And we had a brilliant time, and it was all paid for. Tremendous. Now one day, my client took us to the river Ganges to do some white water rafting. And you can tell it was a tough project. Now many Hindus go to the Ganges on a pilgrimage. And if you ever go there, here's what you'll see. You'll see many Hindus drinking or bathing in its water. Water which they believe will purify them. And it reminded me of this. Within all of us, all of us, there's a quest for a spiritual experience. And notice, that's what Paul found in Athens. In verse 19, if you look down, it says that Paul was brought to the world-famous Supreme Council of Athens, the Areopagus. Now, Areopagus means Hill of Ares, the Greek god of war, or in Latin, Mars Hill. It was the most elite intellectual centre of the world. And it's there that Paul is about to present the case for the Christian faith. And notice how it begins. Verse 22. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. And so what's the first thing we find here? It's this. Human beings are religious. The city of Athens was full of idols. Stone, marble, ivory, gold and silver. You name it, they had it. Raised to every conceivable God they could imagine. And some were truly magnificent workmanship. For example, the gleaming spear point of the gold and ivory idol of Athena was visible 40 miles away. And listen, today it's just the same. Wherever you go in the world, in every culture and society, you find people are religious. You see, we instinctively know that there is someone greater than ourselves. And that is why we ask the big questions of life, such as, why am I here on this planet Earth? 
What is life all about? And where am I going? You ever asked that? But that's not all. You see, when we look inside, there's not only a quest for a spiritual experience. There's also a quest for reality. Now, if you look at verse 23, notice what Paul says here. As he walked around Athens as a tourist, he found this altar, and it said, to an unknown God. Now, imagine you were with Paul in Athens. What would you see? You would see altars built to every god imaginable. Apollo, the city's patron. Jupiter. Venus. Diana. And Mercury, to name but a few. One Roman satirist said, it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. (laughs) But get this, still they weren't sure they had pleased them all. Think about that. And so they made an extra altar to an unknown God. And in some ways, it was a bit like taking out insurance. We were over in Cyprus a few days ago. That's where I got this golden tan. Now in Cyprus, (laughs) thankfully, they drive on the correct side of the road. Very clever. And so we hired a car. And we took out extra insurance, just in case something happened. And it's a pity there was no insurance for getting lost. Well, they built this altar just in case they missed a god. And listen, that is the case with all human religion. People do their best and they worship all kinds of gods. But deep down inside, they're not sure it's enough. Enough. Why? Because the one true living God is still unknown to them. St. Augustine put it very well. He famously said this about God. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And that was true of the Athenians. If you look for a moment at verse 18, you'll notice, back then there were two popular philosophies. And you'll discover they still have their modern counterparts. Okay, now here's the first group. Epicureans. Named after their founder, Epicurus, who died in 270 BC. And they believed that this life was all there is. And so, you should make the most of it by seeking pleasure where you find it. If it feels good, hey, do it. And avoid in pain. If it feels bad, stay away from it. Now, they believed the gods were distant, unconcerned, and so it became an excuse for self-indulgence, And that's the Epicureans. And secondly, there were Stoics, named after the Stoa, or port where their founder Zeno, who died in 265 BC, taught. And they said that life was filled with good and bad, and you couldn't avoid it. So the only thing to do was to grin and bear it. Hence our word, Stoical. Now they emphasised self-sufficiency, we can cope, And they were pantheistic. And that means they believed that God was the world spirit. He wasn't everything. So let me ask you this. Were they religious? Yes. Did they find reality? No. Their hearts didn't rest in the one true God. So that's the first reason 
for the Christian faith. Look inside at your heart. And the second is this. Look around at creation. Last week, you probably heard about NASA's plans for 2018. NASA wants to send four astronauts back up to the moon to look around at space at a cost of £58 billion. But you can go outside for free and save you £58 billion and look up at the night sky and you start to think about the sheer vastness of it all. The billions of galaxies and stars that make up our universe. And it can boggle the mind. Now let's think about this. If someone was to ask you, what is the relationship between modern science and the Bible? How would you respond to that question? Well, for some, they think there must be a conflict. Hasn't science made the idea of a creator simply irrelevant? Can a thinking person really believe in God? Well, let me quote you from Professor John Polkinghorne. Now, Professor John Polkinghorne is a smart guy. He did his PhD in mathematical physics. He's a fellow of the Royal Society. He's a former president of Queen's College in Cambridge. He was appointed KBE in 1997. And he was awarded the Templeton Prize for Science and Religion in 2002. Someone with a lot of letters after his name. Now here's what he said. He said, science and religion are friends, not foes, in the common quest for knowledge. Some people may find this surprising, for there's a feeling throughout our society that religious belief is outmoded or downright impossible in a scientific age. I don't agree. In fact, I go so far as to say that if people in this so-called scientific age knew a, bit about, knew a bit more about science than many of them actually do, they'd find it easier to share my view. 2,000 years ago, this man called Paul is about to give us our second reason for the Christian faith. And here's what it's about. God and creation. Now, if you look down at verse 23, notice what he says, verse 23. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I, I am going to proclaim to you. Look around, says Paul, and he tells us four things about this one true and living God. Number one, he is the creator of the universe. Verse 24 says this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Okay, now let's take a very small part of creation. DNA molecules. Are you ready for a science lesson? Now here's what science has shown us. Life at its root requires information which is stored in DNA and protein molecules. And if you stop and think about it, that requires an intelligent designer. Let me explain. Take the example of a computer. It runs on, it's run on software programs produced by intelligent engineers. And in fact, every experience we have about information, whether it's a computer code 
on a cave painting points towards intelligence. And now here's the point. The same is true about the information inside every cell and every living creature. There is an intelligent designer behind it. And that intelligent designer is God. So that's number one. God is the creator of the universe. Number two, he is the sustainer of life. Take a look at verse 25. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. You see, God has not just wound up the world like a clock and left it to run. He is actively involved in keeping it going. Science lesson number two. Take the expansion rate of the universe. Listen, it is fine-tuned to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. Now, if it was changed by just one part in either direction, a little faster or a little slower, the universe could not support life. Amazing. So let me ask you this. Do you think it's a pure coincidence that the laws of nature are such that life is possible? Or, might this not be an important clue to the nature and the destiny of humanity? And that takes us to the third thing to know about God. Number three, he is the father of everyone. In verse 26 you will notice that in a sense, all human beings originate from one ancestor. And in verse 29, Paul continues, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Now here's what that means for us. In terms of having a personal relationship with God, God is the father only of those who have received his forgiveness and who have received Christ's leadership in their life. But in creation terms, God is the father of all humankind. And there is something deep within all of us which knows that. Jean-Paul Sartre was an existentialist philosopher. And he wrote a book called Being and Nothingness. And here's a summary of what he said. There is no God. The world is meaningless. There is no purpose in life. But listen to this. Near the end of his life, this is what Jean-Paul Sartre said. I do not feel that I am the product of chance, a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who was expected, prepared, prefigured. In short, a being whom only a creator could put there. And this idea of a creating hand refers to God. You see, at the core of his being, he knew, as we all know, that he was created by God to enjoy a relationship with God. And when that is not there in your life, you know it. And that takes us to the fourth point. Number four, he is the seeker of the lost. If you look down again at verse 27, we find that God is not far away, but close by. So that men would seek him, it says, and perhaps reach out for him 
and find him. Look around, says Paul. God has revealed something of who he is in creation. And you'll notice, he quotes from two of their own Greek poets in verse 28. Epimenides and Aratus, to show they had some glimmers of understanding of this. And it's here we now come to the greatest act of love this world has ever seen. And it's how God has supremely revealed himself to us. And it takes us to the third reason for the Christian faith. Look back at history. In Cyprus, a few days ago, we took a bus tour. And our bus tour took us to the capital city of Cyprus, Nicosia. And in Nicosia, we had a choice to make. Option number one. We could meet the bus at 2pm and go to an archaeology museum. Or, option number two, we could meet the bus at 3pm and go shopping and have a big lunch instead. Guess what we did? We chose option number two. Well, if we chose option number one and went to the archaeology museum, we would have seen evidence of history. And that is what Paul is telling us here. You see, above all, God has revealed who he is in history, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying to us here, explore the historical evidence. Investigate Christianity and see if it's true. And you'll notice what it says in verse 30. If you look down. In the past... God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And listen to this. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now it's here we come to something which is absolutely crucial to the Christian faith. And what is it? It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17, Paul writes this, listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Question. What then is the proof of the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the evidence is massive. And we don't have time to examine it all tonight. But if you do get a chance, I would recommend two books. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel and The Resurrection Factor by Josh McDell. And you can order these downstairs in the lounge. But let me give you two observations to think about. And here's the first one. The disciples died for their belief. Now, I don't know if you saw Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. But if you've seen it, you'll remember that after Jesus died on a cross, his disciples were discouraged. They were broken. But look at what happened next. It's amazing. They spent the rest of their lives proclaiming that Jesus had risen. And many of them were killed because of that. So why? What had changed? Well, it's because the tomb was empty and they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen Jesus alive from the dead. Now, here's the point. 
Nobody knowingly and willingly dies for a lie. You see, they were willing to die for someone they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands after he had been raised from the dead. Around AD 35, Paul was given an early Christian creed. And it tells us what happened after Jesus was crucified. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what it says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And listen to this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, here's the logic behind that. People will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true. Correct? But people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know their beliefs are false. So firstly, the disciples died for their belief. Jesus was alive. Secondly, the death of Christ was celebrated. Now, for some of you, you may be able to think back to the 22nd of November, 1963. And that makes you 40. But that's not old. And you may know where you were when you heard the news that President John F. Kennedy had been shot in Dallas, Texas. For millions of Americans, their leader was dead. Now imagine this. Imagine if a group of people loved John F. Kennedy and they met regularly to remember him. What do you think they would celebrate? Well, possibly his confrontation with Russia, his promotion of civil rights, and his charismatic personality. But here's what they're definitely not going to celebrate. They will not celebrate the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald murdered him. They would never do that. But that's analogous to what these early Christians did. So how on earth do you explain that? Well, there's only one credible explanation. It's because his murder was not the last word. The last word was that he conquered death for all of us by rising from the dead. And that means... Jesus is alive tonight. We sang those words earlier. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lamb that was slain. Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus died and rose again. That is wonderful. Jesus Christ is alive tonight. We have a course at this church called Christianity Explores. Explored, as you know, that explores in a lot more depth who Jesus is, why he came, and what is a Christian. It starts on Monday the 3rd 
of October at 7.30pm in the lounge. And as you leave tonight, you'll get a leaflet telling you more. And there's also an information point downstairs in the lounge. And I would highly recommend it to you. Now finally, here we come to the fourth reason for faith. Look ahead at your future. Now let me give you two contrasting thoughts about the future. The first is from the group Talking Heads. One of their hit records goes like this. We're on a road to nowhere. Come on inside, taking that road to nowhere. It reminds me of driving in Cyprus. Now the second is from Corrie Ten Boom. During the Second World War, Corrie was sent to the infamous Ravensbrück concentration camp. But this is what Corrie said. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to an own God. Now Paul is speaking here about your future, your eternal future. And if you look at verse 31, notice what it says. God has set a day when he will judge the world. And there are three things to know about God's judgment. Number one, it will be universal. Everyone will be judged. Number two, it will be carried out with justice by the appointed man, Jesus, fully God and fully man. And number three, it is definite. God has already fixed the date. So here's the question for us. How will you respond to the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Is he a reality in your life tonight? And are you ready to meet him? Tonight we started with some fairly incredible claims. Claims that affect your appearance. We've also looked at the claims of Christianity. Claims that affect your eternal future. 2,000 years ago, Paul's message is received in three ways. Number one, contempt. Some of them sneered. Number two, interest. Some wanted to hear more. And number three, faith. Some believed and put their trust in Jesus. Why? Because faith has its reasons. The Bible says this, Yet to all who received him, that is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. My challenge to you is simply this. How will you respond tonight? Let's pray.